Good afternoon and welcome to the 208th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today is a COVID calls history of public health and medicine session with Deborah Levine and Jacob Steer Williams. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, January 25th, 2021, there are 2,135,697 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 25,217,690 cases reported in the United States. There are today 420,267 deaths reported in the United States from COVID-19. That's up from 408,011 reported last Thursday, which is the last day that I broadcast COVID calls. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is health experts urge confidence in vaccine after superstar's death disappeared January 22nd in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution by Brad Schrade and Eric Sturgis. When Hank Aaron and other African-American leaders invited reporters to watch them receive COVID-19 immunization shots on January 5th, 2021, the baseball legend said he did so to help spread the word to millions that the vaccine is safe. It felt good, Aaron said afterward, at the Morehouse School of Medicine where the event was held. Now, just over two weeks later, public health experts and some of the Black leaders with Aaron that day worried that an event that drew so much publicity could inadvertently serve to undermine confidence in the vaccine. Within minutes of news breaking Friday morning, of the baseball greats' death, those with doubts about the vaccine turned to social media to try to draw a connection to Aaron's recent immunization. That worries Joe Beasley, one of the activists who received the Moderna vaccine shot alongside Aaron. I hope this won't have a chilling effect on our people, said Beasley, 84. We can't afford it because too many people are dying from COVID-19. The cause of death was not announced, but the Braves the Atlanta Braves baseball club said that Aaron died peacefully in his sleep. Public health officials have been girding for weeks to fend off rumors and questions about vaccine safety, especially in the age of social media, where unsubstantiated claims can be challenging to tamp down. In some parts of Georgia, fewer than half of healthcare workers and nursing homes aides are getting vaccinated out of safety concerns. Vaccine reluctance is fueled in part by the speed with which the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines were developed and authorized, although the clinical trials that took place last year involved tens of thousands of people and were approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. 
All the data in these huge clinical trials did not support a role for vaccine in causing death, said Dr. Walter A. Orenstein, a former director at the CDC's immunization program and a professor at the Emory Vaccine Center. My fear is people will act emotionally and not get vaccinated. My fear is that people misinterpret this and say, aha, see, the vaccine is dangerous, when in fact there's no science data to support that hypothesis at all. Michael Osterholm, director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota, said the proximity of Aaron's death to such a highly publicized vaccine is a teaching moment for public health officials to use facts to calm people's fears. He said in a program where millions of older Americans and those with serious health conditions are being vaccinated, some are going to die of heart attacks, strokes, and other causes that have nothing to do with a vaccine. We have to have the public understand that all of these events in life occur on a routine basis, he said, and that coincidentally, they're going to occur in the same time period that a vaccine would occur. And they have nothing to do with the vaccination any more than if they had, you know, taken a ride in a car the day before. The car had nothing to do with it. The World Health Organization this week released findings after a series of deaths in elderly people with severe illness in nursing homes in Norway caused concerns about vaccination, but the review didn't find evidence that the Pfizer vaccine caused the deaths. Dr. Carlos Del Rio, an infectious disease expert at Emory School of Medicine, said the much bigger risk to frail older people is the coronavirus. We have 4,000 COVID-19 deaths every day in our country, he said. We need to put things in perspective. I'm more afraid of COVID than I am of the vaccine. Aaron, who was 86, suffered from arthritis and had a partial hip replacement after falling in 2014, and he used a wheelchair at the Morehouse event. Andrew Young, a former ambassador and Atlanta mayor, got his vaccine shot that day with Aaron. Young and others interviewed Friday said they have not had any severe reactions to the shot. Young, 88, who worked alongside the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. during the civil rights movement, said he's taken vaccines all his life and remains confident in their safety. Young said of Aaron, it was his time and he has made a great contribution to the city and nation and to baseball as well. I'm gonna add a section from a second story just to give a little bit more perspective on Hank Aaron. This is a story that was published in the Associated Press January 22nd as well by Paul Newberry. Hank Aaron's journey to Babe Ruth's mark, home run record, was hardly pleasant. He was the target of extensive hate mail as he closed in on Babe Ruth's cherished record of 714 home runs. If I was white, all America would be proud of me, Aaron said almost a year before he passed Ruth, but I'm black. Aaron was shadowed constantly by bodyguards and forced to distance himself from teammates. He kept hateful letters, a bitful reminder of the abuse he endured and never forgot. It's very offensive, he once said, you can't ignore them. They're here, but this is just the way things are for black people in America. It's something you battle all your life. After retiring in 1976, Aaron became a revered, almost mythical figure, even though he never pursued the spotlight. He was thrilled when the United States elected Barack Obama as its first African-American president in 2008. Former President Bill Clinton credited Aaron with helping carve a path of racial tolerance that made Obama's victory possible. You've given us far more than we'll ever give you. President Clinton said at Aaron's 75th birthday celebration. Okay, we're gonna to turn to our discussion for today. I've got two really great guests. Let me introduce them. 
Deborah Levine is Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Health Policy and Management at Providence College. A historian of medicine who regularly writes and teaches on health policy, Professor Levine has recently drawn on insights from the history of medicine in articles in the Washington Post about vaccines and low-tech technologies for managing COVID-19. Prior to teaching at Providence College, Levine earned a PhD in the history of science at Harvard University and completed a postdoc in the Andrew M. Mellon Modeling Interdisciplinary Inquiry Postdoctoral Fellowship Program at Washington University in St. Louis. Recent academic publications have ranged from the history of the calorie in the United States health policy, health insurance markets, and fitness trackers. My second guest is Jacob Steer Williams. He's a historian of epidemic disease and public health and an associate professor at the College of Charleston. He's the author of the recently published book, The Filth Disease, Typhoid Fever and the Practices of Epidemiology in Victorian England with the University of Rochester Press. Jacob has been active as well during the COVID-19 pandemic in engaging in public scholarship, writing op-eds in local and national media outlets, giving public lectures and organizing an oral history project in Charleston. Jacob and Debbie, thanks so much for making time to come on COVID calls today. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having us. I'd like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you are and how the pandemic is there today. Debbie, let me start with you. Sure, I'm in Rhode Island. Uh, this is my, I teach at a small liberal arts college, Providence College um, in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, and today was our first day of classes. Um, that was pushed back a bit um, in order to do repopulation testing on um, repopulating the campus. Um, and so that's what's been going on uh, in at Providence College. Um, and I'm sort of refreshing the dashboard to see how that has been going. I'll let you know if they post. Um, and then I live in Rhode Island, where we are at around a 5% positivity rate in testing, down from 6.5% a week ago, and significantly higher than that when we were a global hotspot back in December. Um, we're lagging behind the rest of New England in vaccinations. We have only about 14,000 people um, of around 1 million fully vaccinated so far. Um, and they, the health department just updated nine Rhode Islanders died of COVID-19 yesterday and 347 were hospitalized. And so that's the numbers of what the pandemic looks like where I am beyond those specifics. Um, the pandemic is similar in Rhode Island today to where many are in the United States, laying bare many problems in our society, our public health infrastructure, our politics. The lives of some are radically different. Others are sick or dying or dead. Um, but the lives of others go on for now, more or less unchanged, um, all in the same small geographic space. Thanks for that update. You know, one of the things that's really fascinating and interesting for me to watch are metro areas that are at the junction point of multiple different states. Washington, D.C. is a good example of this. Um, but Providence is as, as well, um, given the size of the state. I wonder if that's something that has been very evident that Massachusetts and Rhode Island and Connecticut might have maybe quite similar, but still different in important ways, public health approaches to the pandemic that somehow reflected on the ground there. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, radically different. I think one of the things that people have been talking about in many spaces has been the problems with a lack of a strong federal plan for addressing the pandemic and relying so much on states to set their own policies um, using their own resources in many cases. And one of the ways in which that's so absurd in terms of how that plays out here in New England where states are small and in Rhode Island, which is, as you know, the smallest of the 50 states, um, is, you know, for a while there were, there, there remain rules about quarantining when crossing state lines and um, all of the kinds of rules that are out there. Um, but many of us live and work in different states. Um, the good grocery store is over the border in Massachusetts, perhaps. Um, you know, all of these kinds of day-to-day -day ways in which those state borders um, before the pandemic seemed really meaningless. Um, and now all of a sudden carry this um, real uh, policy meaning and health meanings. I, I just want to say one more sort of preliminary question for you, Debbie, that maybe we can come back to. Didn't, has Rhode Island actually gone through with changing the name of the state as well? Yes, we have. Yes. So in November, um, the people of Rhode Island, finally, I think it was the third time it went to the, the ballot, but it was the first time since I was here. I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, but we are no longer uh, Rhode Island and Providence plantations. We are Rhode Island. I, this is a, maybe a, a broader conversation, but it, it's interesting to me that that took place this year, mm. that that finally got across the finish line. And, I, you know, because Rhode Island and Providence plantations, the naming of it and Providence's own history in the slave trade is something that a lot of Americans are just now learning about. A lot of white Americans are learning about for the first time, I think, this year. So part of this broader disaster year that we had and in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I'm seeing uh, curriculums. I have young children in elementary school and they're learning about uh, Rhode Island's essential role or central role to the slave trade um, in elementary school, um, which is, I think, a new development. Um, and I also am seeing more and more people talking about the ways in which um, you know the thing the the money that finances our institutions in Rhode Island is so suffused with the history of slavery in the United States. Jacob, let me bring you in um, just be before I turn you loose to tell us what things are are like there. I just want to remind folks that I had Jacob on May. I was went back and looked May thirteenth. Um, you were on with Monica Green, in which was a really fascinating conversation. Um, do you remember how many deaths there were at that point? Like you, I did my homework, Scott. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so it seemed like a, that was a lifetime ago. Yeah. But here's some perspective that I help that I think helps like launch into this discussion about the pandemic. So in South Carolina, where I am, on May 13th of 2020. Uh, the state reported 8,030 cases and 362 deaths due to COVID-19. We are some months later, and as of today, January 25th, 2021, our state DHEC reported 418,000 cases of COVID and 6,547 deaths. Uh, today, our uh, percent positive cases, so compare this to Debbie's experience in Providence, is 25.4%. It's really astounding to me um, to put that into perspective. Um, not only to have the comparison with Debbie, another city, Charleston, you know, fundamental to 
the slave trade um, and history of, of uneven racial politics. Um, but just to think about how we, we experience this pandemic, like all pandemics, even within one country, even along one coast, in, in vastly different ways. There's a, you know, there's a, there's a kind of way in which I think, you know, I, like many people, I wake up and I, I look at the COVID numbers, you know, for, for, for the U.S. and for the world. And I think those big numbers nationally or globally, you can get sort of lost in the magnitude of them. But when you, when you make it hyper-local at a state or even a city level, it puts that, that, that natural disaster of the pandemic into some focus, I think. So, you know, the, the 6,547 deaths, and I, and I say that, and Scott, I notice you, you also do this a lot too. The numbers matter, right? Not just 6,500, but 6,547 deaths in my state since the pandemic started. I mean, those are, those are neighbors, they're friends, they're colleagues, they're friends of friends. I mean, the networks that, that bind us together in communities are, are being, you know, devastated right now. And, you know, when you, when you put, um, when you put some of the, those numbers and, and you humanize them, it, it, it makes this real, more real. What's it looking like on your campus right now, Jacob? Yeah, so, so even at a, a more hyper-local level, you know, where I teach my university, the College of Charleston is an, is an urban campus right downtown Charleston. Um, we're experiencing a, a surge of cases in the third week of classes. Our university chose not to, um, <clears throat> unlike uh, uh, Debbie's University, delayed the start of the semester. So we started right on time in the spring, like we would plan to do. And we're, we have faculty teaching classes in person. And there's been no pivot to exclusive online learning. There's been no little to no enforcement of COVID regulations, even though they exist on our campus, mask wearing, social distancing, and uh, there's no mandatory testing as of yet. So it's all volunteer testing. And, and over the weekend, we had a surge. So as of this morning, we have 96 students in isolation, and we have an additional 151 that are being quarantined. Um, I spoke to a colleague of mine who works in Res Life. And that they're completely overwhelmed and they don't have spaces to do quarantining right now. You know, the, the, a story like that would have been on the front page of the New York Times in September that I think we've all experienced this problem. And this is something we'll talk about as well, a sort of a fatigue um, in which we become inured to certain things that even six months ago we might have thought was impossible to become used to. But even on our campuses and in our workplaces, not just in higher education, um, things that seemed completely impossible to accept in the workplace in, for the fall semester uh, have now become, I don't want to say totally normalized, because as you say, the faculty are paying attention, the students are paying attention, there's public health processes underway, but it's no longer unthinkable, is it? Yeah, that's right. There's a, you know, I think... It's not normalized, but it's, I think we become desensitized. And I think that's part of pandemics and, you know, natural disasters, uh, you know, in general. I think, you know, if you talk to people after Hurricane Katrina, the immediate aftermath of that natural disaster, you know, three months from then, you know, I think there was a sort of desensitization as well. So I think we can, we can view this in a sort of broader lens. That's so I, 
that I find kind of um, flummoxing, though. I think, you know, this summer there was a lot of optimism on college campuses, certainly on the campus I work on. And um, all of the language was kind of, if there are cases, what will we do? Mm-hmm. And then we had a surge in the third week on, um, in the third week of the fall. Um, we had a pivot to remote education. We had coming back into the classroom. There was There was a whole kind of up and down to it. Um, and so I have experienced that really as, okay, well, why, you know, the situation hasn't changed. Um, why would this be different this spring? Um, and, and so I think the the sort of space for optimism to me seems to be um, kind of closed, um, even as the people who are having the optimism, there seems to be more of them. Um, and so I think that's a really interesting way of putting of putting that's not a part of the fatigue I've really thought about is kind of the I I have been thinking a lot about fatigue with my students and family members as kind of these individual choices but not so much about it from an institutional perspective I think we've also reached the part of this uh, disaster in which risk management is just playing a crucial role and when I say risk management I mean offices at universities and other institutions that are doing cost-benefit analysis right now. And, um, you know, the fear of the lawsuits that were gonna come um, if students got sick or faculty got sick, someone died on one side, measured on the other side versus uh, students um, and their parents who are expressing concern that they're not getting their money's worth. And those, and there are other factors, of course, I'm making it a little bit simple for this example, but I know that's just, I know that that's the reality of what's being discussed inside uh, the boardrooms and presidents and provost offices and universities across the United States and work in other types of workplaces as well. Um, you know, I want to start um, in the now. I know neither one of you is a is an epidemiologist uh, or practicing physician, but um, I, there's been something it's, um, been in the news a lot over the last weekend. And Peter Hotez was a guest that I had on a couple of weeks back and we had a really great conversation. And he said here, and I've heard him repeat it in other places that um, we need a hundred million vaccinations a month in the United States to actually have a chance of bending the curve in a, and really starting to save lives. I mean, if you wanna call a vaccination project a success in the United States, that's the number he put on the board. And the Biden administration has said they want to try to reach 100 million in 100 days, which is an interesting take on what a president's first 100 days should look like. But there's a pretty radical difference between those two objectives. And I, Debbie, I want to ask you this first. I mean, when you hear claims like that and numbers like that being thrown around, how do you make sense of those different objectives? Because they're pretty different. They are. They are pretty different. Um, and. You know, I think um, when I sort of look at like what for me, what success means for vaccination in the next six months isn't necessarily about um, a number. Right. I'm a historian. I'm interested in policy implementations. And I think if we have infrastructure and planning and um, public trust, if we continue to have successful um, vaccinations that, you know, and the, the side effects continue to be minor, I think that'll build public trust in the vaccine. I assume we'll talk later about vaccine hesitancy, which is an important issue. Um, But I am optimistic that as the vaccine gets rolled out, um, more people will be um, excited and willing um, to vaccinate. Um, 
But I also think, you know, politicians have different ideas than um, physicians and public health uh, uh, professionals and epidemiologists in terms of what numbers look like. And for the Biden administration, you know, it makes every sense to kind of under promise and over deliver. So if it looks like we're on track and, you know, some of the things I've been reading say we're, we're on track to get to that, um, that number um, and then they ramp up and they do even better, um, then that's a great sort of way to start the, the administration in terms of the presidency. Um, you know, I think there are going to be increasingly, um, there's the big number, which is, you know, 100 million a month is almost hard to get your brain around. And then there are all of the populations that are eager to vaccinate you. Um, there are teachers and uh, grocery store workers. And there's a really interesting conversation around research on vaccines for children um, or anyone under 16 right, um, right now. Um, and so I think... Um, you know, when you're playing with scale like this, the big and the small numbers, there's just there's a lot to unpack. I, I, I really like um, Jacob. I find it really useful what Debbie's saying about the different motivations of science communication in this sense. Uh, let me just throw in a little problem with that, which is I have been very vocal um, criticizing the former president as a not only a, sci a poor science communicator, but a liar, basically, about science. Um, but somehow it feels different, or am I just giving the Biden administration a, a pass here? Because again, I mean, I, I like what Debbie's saying is under-promising and over-delivering is, is, makes sense politically. Um, but I don't know, I'm still, I, I, I wanna know sort of what you think about that distance between those, those two numbers. And again, to throw one more thing on top of that, if you don't mind, that maybe neither one of those, as Debbie suggests, is the right, number it's not a number it's a confidence measure which will be hard to quantify or it's the number that we should be paying attention to is elderly or african-american or indigenous those are the numbers so i put a lot of the plate there but i wonder what you think of any of that yeah so i think you know in the in the in the first year of experiencing COVID 19 under the leadership in this country of former president um trump i think you know, what we've witnessed is a failure of leadership to implement effective public health strategies. So I think with what we're seeing is with the change in administration, without seeing the rubber hit the road yet, I think a lot of people, they need the, they need the hope that, that this administration is going to tackle the big problems with responding and mitigating uh, this pandemic. I mean, I think the vaccine is a kind of tangible something that people can recognize and hold on to as a sign of that hope, even though, I mean, you know, one of the things that, you know, as a historian of public health and as someone who actively reads public health literature, I mean, what's clear is the, is the vaccine solution to this pandemic or any pandemic is only one part of the solution. So, you know, we're, we're at this moment right now, if you look at, you know, what's happening just across this country with the vaccine itself, there are myriad problems. You know, uh, the CDC reported last week that over 30 million doses were distributed across the American states, but only 12 million were administered. Um, the Pfizer vaccine is being distributed by UPS and FedEx, but Moderna is being shipped through McKesson. Different distribution networks and protocols. There have been mistakes that are happening every day in real time. Um, you know, so so this plan of 100 million vaccines scenes in 100 days. I think it's a sort of catchy public health kind of slogan, even if it is uh, just that. 
um, a slogan and the, and the plan and the intent is to do a lot more. Um, but I think it's, it's part of this communication strategy and reframing how our political leaders in this country are, are communicating to the broader public just what it is that, that uh, a, a president uh, in, in the presidential cabinet and the broader leadership is going to do for the American people to, to, to mitigate the spread of this disease. So if we do put the the numbers aside for a second, whatever a successful number of vaccinations delivered, and as you suggest, Jacob, even that is, can get slippery. We're we talking about numbers of doses that have arrived in clinics, numbers of shots that have been given, numbers of secondary shots. I mean, there's lots of numbers on the on the table there. Um, but there's also the other pieces of this. You know, do we have enough people who are trained to deliver the vaccination, um, or even just back to what's now become um, somehow a central part of American protest culture, the mask. And there was a story in the New York Times just two days ago about Cobb County, Georgia, and a teacher had died. I don't know if you saw this, a teacher had died in the school district and they asked for members of the school board to put on the mask as an honor to the teacher and several of them wouldn't do it. So, so that's somehow, to me, you cannot disentangle that from this vaccination story, but so much oxygen is being sub sucked up by that by that vaccination. I wonder if either of you want to sort of say a little bit more about the associated pieces here, not just the vaccination, but what you think the ripple effect of the focus on that is on some of these other maybe less exciting or somehow less newsworthy parts of the overall public health approach. Debbie, can I give you the first pass at that? Sure. I mean, I think this comes, uh, this kind of all comes down to a concept that I really enjoy teaching in my health policy classes. Um, that's um, all about the technological imperative in U.S. healthcare. Man, do we love um, Americans time and again, choose uh, technological fixes for um, a limited number of people over um, even incredibly um, effective uh yeah, measures for everyone. And there are lots of um, historical um, kind of ante antecedents of of this uh, example, but you know, we're seeing it play out in so much real time. You see the hope uh, around the vaccine and the kind of the, the pomp and circumstance of the, the first delivery trucks driving across the country to deliver um, the vaccine, um, kind of the, the, the conversations about the money associated with the vaccine. How much is everyone spending? How much are countries buying? Um, all of those sorts of things um, really remind me of conversations that we have about all sorts of other scarce and technological resources um, throughout the history of public health and medicine in the United States. And then you look at the poor mask, right? The highly effective, now highly politicized, very cheap if we would just, um, you know, do what we needed to do to produce effective ones um, domestically and distribute them. Um, and those are often overlooked. Mm -hmm. 
Um, one of the conversations that I think has been so interesting around the vaccines, um, kind of building off your point, is not just the, the staff to train them and not just the doses themselves, but we don't have enough syringes. We don't have enough um, I think I was even reading that there there are shortages of alcohol swabs, um, all of these kinds of things that are simple, that are um, cheap, and that are just incredibly uninteresting for some reason um, to uh, broad swaths of the American public. Um, and so I, you know, watching that play out, in particular, um, people who are really skeptical of masks, but who are excited about the vaccine, um, people who are sort of uh, you're seeing journalists, individuals, politicians kind of going all in on this technical solution um, and then having to play catch up afterwards and saying, oh, no, no, you're still going to have to mask and distance for quite some time. Um, you know, it's a really interesting tension um, with technology and money and communications. You know, I, I mean, I'm always a killjoy when it comes as a historian of technology, because look, I. I applaud the vaccine, everything that went into the production of these vaccines. And it's a much longer story than 10 month story, obviously for these mRNA ones, certainly. But when the supply chain works, that to me is just as impressive, if not more so. Yeah. And this is a very extensive and exciting mm -hmm. supply chain. When you think about, you know, the complexities of, of American geography and, and uh, you know, the public private weird system that we have. Is, I don't know how to even ask this question. I mean, Debbie, just to stay with you for this was saying, is it just that we in the United States, we don't have a way to tell that story effectively? We're, we're so, so focused on the techno fix and the expensive techno fix that that has to lead and uh, cotton swabs and syringes can't. I mean, just, I mean, to put it in parentheses here as a person who studied fire, Home smoke alarms have saved more than just about any technology in the did in the twentieth century, but you try to sell that story. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't work. I fear that we're somehow lost in that, and that had has had huge public health implications. Absolutely, I completely agree with you. Um, I think that you know. I, I agree with other scholars who think about the ways in which this has become institutionalized in American life. Um, these kind of unchecked assumptions that newer technology is better than old technology, that more expensive technology is better than less expensive technology. Um, and not every country, um, the Americans seem to, um, uh, Americans seem to fall for that much more than um, many other places that are maybe more hesitant about um, technical fixes, maybe more hesitant in investing in those technical fixes. And as profit and profit pressures have gone, um, you know, have have grown over the last 50 years, you've seen a complete shift away from interest in the supply chain um, and as certainly in American businesses. Right. Um, to disrupting what's existing, to discovering the next thing that's that's coming, um, to taking those kinds of risks, and they get rewarded with attention and investment and money, and you know, cotton swabs and smoke alarms don't inspire that same kind of um, don't that same kind of interest um, in much of the the certainly the discourse, and and I think in the industries too. 
Jacob, let me bring you in, and I've got a question here from Paula Miller, which is sort of um, connected, sort of adjacent to what Debbie and I have just been talking about, sort of talking about the mask, and that maybe we've seen, and this sort of connect this maybe to the vaccine discussion a little bit, maybe it's just too hard now for public health leaders and elected leaders to engage the mask discussion. Maybe there's just not any ground to be gained there, whereas the vaccine, I mean, there's a lot of rancor about that too but I, I don't know what do you think about paula's question and how that factors into the yeah this conversation debbie and i are having yeah and i want to i want to thank paula too so paula is uh one of my students in uh, my intro to medical humanities class who i invited to our discussion so it's oh, great really, it's a great question see uh to see her engagement here yeah so i think you know in in some ways you know and i and i and i i place this blame not exclusively but a large portion of it on former President Donald Trump is we sort of let the cat out of the bag. I mean, COVID denialists have spent the, the year not wearing masks and getting away with it, uh, despite uh, mandates and, and regulations at local, local and state levels. Um, you know, Scott, you had on a, a friend of mine um, several months ago, Christos Linteris, who's a medical anthropologist. And Christos has written, uh, and he's, he's an expert um, on public health and, and disease and, uh, and, and East Asia. And, and one of the things that Christos is, is really an expert on and what he's written extensively on is how the mask became a kind of domesticated everyday technology in the course of the early 20th century in, in China. And, 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 and there were some real contingent reasons why that happened and when that happened. And it didn't happen in the US. And so to, to sort of you know imagine that with a change in political administration, we'll all of a sudden be able to convince millions of Americans who are fundamentally against wearing a mask out in public to all of a sudden that they're just gonna get behind it, I think is, is really short-sighted. I do think that it's a, it's a serious challenge for this, this administration um, is to be able to, um, you know, evince a kind of, you know, a, a reality of how much good something so simple, such a simple technology can do at this time. I, I would also just, um, that's such a good point. And Paula, I really like your question. And I would point you towards um, just maybe I'm airing, I'm, maybe I'm being a bit too optimistic, but um, while um, Trump and the Trump administration and the politicizing of masks is a terrible thing that happened this year, there have been other public health interventions that have uh, sort of pushed those same buttons about individual liberties and infringement on health. I think about um, seatbelt laws and mm -hmm. laws about installing seatbelts, which um, now feel so routine to us, but was highly controversial at the time. Um, I've studied um, the history of um, obesity and health policy in the United States and very similar arguments about um, the idea of individuals having rights to really big sodas or to um, school children having rights to french fries and pizza in schools. Mm -hmm. All of these kinds of things have been framed in this question of individual rights and actually individual kind of consumer rights. Um, this, uh, which is not the only way to frame the question about individual liberties, right? Um, but it is one that um, with public health interventions, people have kind of returned to over and over again. Uh, let's just stay on this track for a second because I'm sort of curious how both of you might bring hi history to bear a bit on this very strange moment we find ourselves in where 
we had one very distinctive federal approach to the disaster, which was more or less non-intervention, I think, just let the states manage, to now what's gonna look like, what we might consider a sort of a normal response, it's gonna look very robust to us because we've seen it compared to nothing. Some have described this as a natural experiment or a national natural social science experiment. I'm not sure how comfortable I am with that, but it's certainly gonna be two different approaches. Do we have historical examples like this to draw from? And I think my question at the core of that is how possible is it for a government to change public opinion in the middle of a pandemic or to change is too strong, but to begin to shape public opinion in one direction in the middle of a pandemic? Do we have some history to draw from on this? I, either one of you wanna answer this? Jacob, do you go ahead. Go ahead, Debbie. I can speak to some global, some global kinds. Yeah, of it history. doesn't have to be in the U.S. I'm just curious about that because that seems to be what's on the table right now. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about. I mean, I, I, I I'm struggling to find a, 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 a clear historical corollary where, in the middle of a pandemic, there's a change of political administration. But I mean, it, one of the things that I, that I keep, you know, coming back to and thinking about this question is, you know, uh, you know. Early in the in the pandemic, we saw former President Trump disavow American support of the WHO, and 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 now with the change of a political administration, we see American reinstatement of American support of the WHO, and that's really you know I, I'm paying real close attention to that as a kind of real tangible kind of uh, intervention here um, because you know one of the you know speaking of the you know continue our discussion of the vaccines. One of the historical examples we have of a vaccination story in the 20th century and quite recent history, as, as you both know, and many of our li your listeners will know, is the global eradication of smallpox campaign um, of the WHO announcing in 1980 that smallpox was eradicated. And what's so interesting about that example is when that project began um, in the 50s and, and you know, $2.5 billion were, were spent on that campaign, it's scholars have, have looked at, you know, it one was in lieu of other campaigns. So it was, it was ramping down global efforts to stop yellow fever, malaria, hookworm, and focusing on smallpox. And it required a, a real global solution. Um, and, it, and it was one that really depended on health sur surveillance and, and new kinds of technology at a global level. And so while our former, you know, president, has it really was was focused on a on a very narrow, hands off solution in this country. I'm hoping that we both see uh, a more you know federal response, but also a global response. Um, so you know that's kind of where my focus is, and as we change the political administration, what I'm looking and hoping to see. Debbie, what's your your take on this? The possibility that a change in government can also drive some sort of a, a broader change in public opinion around any kind of efficacy and in, in intervention? You know, I'll be watching really closely. It's something mm -hmm. that I'm hopeful about. I like that um, the, the, the smart and competent people that are on the team um, are encouraging people to uh, wear masks and social distance. I do think that there is power in that example. Um, I don't know how much of the uh, I don't know how much power there is. I don't know how much power there is with people who, um, you know, those of us who are still paying attention 
um, we're already doing those things. Um, in the people that have kind of turned their backs to it, it's really hard to know. I actually think that's going to be one of the most interesting things to track going forward is um, in the absence of um, these very loud voices coming out of places of power, um, uh, what 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 that might look like. Um, and I'm not confident to predict. Yeah. You know, the other thing, if I could just jump in here real quick, that, that strikes me, you know, as Debbie was talking about some of the historical precedents here of sort of public health in action. You know, if you, if you go back to the early 20th century in American history and in American public health, you see American public health officials across the country doing real grassroots organizations that try to curb the major infectious diseases. And we often, you know, and historians sort of used to look at this through a kind of progressive uh, uh, lens of development and, and public good. And, you know, in the last, you know, you know, couple decades, historians have shown how, well, at the same time that that was happening, uh, public officials were blaming and targeting immigrants, people right. of color, women. And so while, you know, I think there's a real, there's a tension here that's, that, the, that the history really illuminates that we might also be expecting that as we give maybe more power and, and authority for public, to public health officials, we also got to make sure that we don't repeat all the same ways in which public health has been a tool uh, of, of injustice in this country. Well, actually, that's, that's pretty good. We didn't plan this, but let's stick with this as a good segue. We're getting a lot of great questions in today. I want to thank everybody who's posting a question. Uh, we may not get to all, all of them, but Juliet Arnheim is asking, the states are now following CDC guidelines that suggest vaccinating the public by descending age group. Um, the question here is how and who should decide priorities in the future when there are limited health resources. I like that question, and I like where it, how it attaches to what you were just saying, Jacob, in this in this broader sense. I mean, policy decisions will be made. Public health officials will have to, are making decisions at this point. Decisions that were deferred or not made last year at the federal level. Mask mandate or not? For whom? Under what conditions? Uh, scarce resource of vaccine. Who's what federal guidelines will be given for the CDC? If states don't follow those guidelines, what will the federal? I mean, a tangle of questions here. Start with Juliet's specific question, Jacob. What do you think? Yeah, it's a really good question. And you know, you know, you know when we when you were introducing uh, Debbie and you were talking about a city like like hers that sits at this apex of several different states, I think here is where you know we're really going to have to pay close attention. You know, and. In this country, it's kind of a, a tricky example compared to many other countries where, you know, we've, because of our federalist system, we give a lot of, you know, responsibility to the to states to, to make and especially to enforce laws uh, and regulations. So, you know, what we've seen so far during this outbreak is a complete, you know, I, what I just keep telling people and students, it's just the wild, wild west out there with dealing with COVID. It's everybody sort of doing things on their own and very unevenly. Um, and so... You know, if we can't come up with some some real clear federal guidelines for states to adhere to, I'm afraid we're going to all be running down different rabbit holes. You know, one of the I spent last week, uh, I wake up early because I have two small children anyway, but I spent two days last week waking up early, clicking on the public's website for my parents who live in Florida and my in-laws that live in Florida, um, trying to get them signed up for a vaccine. I mean, that's not a public, that's not an effective public health approach to, to, to distributing 
a vaccine. And that's a, that's a, that's a result of us just throwing the responsibility of dealing with this pandemic on states. And then, and, and more than that, on individual people. And so if we don't come up with some, some, you know, to me, some real federal oversight here, then we're just going to be keep spiraling down these, these separate holes. And, and I would also add that um, this also pokes at another key cultural tension in our healthcare system. And so the United States, um, within our healthcare discussions, we are not comfortable with discussions about rationing. We believe in this myth that we don't ration healthcare in the United States. That's something that those socialist countries do somewhere else. Um, and of course, that's not true. Many historians have shown and other scholars um, have shown all kinds of ways that we um, ration care. And also anyone who pays attention can see that we ration care according to the job you have, or that um, we, the, we, ra we, sorry, we ration insurance according to the job you have. We um, ration insurance according to age, right? If you're 65 and older, you have, um, and you qualify, you have access to Medicare, underneath you don't. So there are many mechanisms of rationing, but it remains this sort of, um, taboo subject in American healthcare. People don't want to engage in that. And I think one of the things that we're noticing in talking about vaccines is here is a something where there's a limited supply and there is a ton of demand and we have to come up with a way that um, rations those. And some people are perfectly comfortable saying, well, the people with money and the people who have the uh, Wi-Fi to jump on the website as soon as they can should be the ones to get those. That's the free market. That's how our healthcare system works. And those of us who are trying to inject more discussions about equity, about prioritization, um, are really running into this uh, stream that runs so deep in the American healthcare system um, around this question of rationing. Really glad that you brought that up and it, it ties back to something you were saying earlier about this. It's not surprising, I guess, in the American political economy, but that the individual is the unit that we're going to focus on. So, you know, we're looking at individuals in the society being made sick. We're looking at, you know, how much suffering, how what's the wait time for an individual and that rationing. I think for me, you know, when I think about, you know, my own education in American history, the rationing, the penny drives and the, um, you know, everything that went on during World War II, let's say, that's treated as in like an almost unimaginable moment in American history when but people would go without, mm -hmm. you know? Well, but, and when did the idea of rationing as patriotic, which you're sort of pointing to, right? This idea is rationing as your patriotic duty to take care of one another. How did that, I mean, we know how, but, um, but one of the questions that, you know, I think we're sort of forced to face is, is how did we come so far from that? Right, where rationing is um, seen as, uh, you know, we haven't even heard the word, I haven't seen the word rationing in connection no. to vaccines, right? We're talking about prioritization and, and other things like that. And, and it's really seen as this um, infringement on an individual's, uh, or a, a referendum on their worth to society, a referendum, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of things are, work is getting done there. But it's still, and I feel like we're still, we're right in the middle of it, so it's going to take some time to figure out, but I, I'm really fascinated by the direction you're taking that, because you could imagine a, a quite powerful framing, but maybe it was necessary to do it in April of last year, to say, look, the, the nation has to pull together, and, and, not everybody's going to have access to everything all at the same time here. We're asking for people who can go without to go without at this time. 
and it instead it's been mass hysteria at the supermarket because people couldn't get toilet paper. And it's the kinds of stories, Jacob, your story resonates completely with me talking to my father, calling all around the countryside to try to get access to a vaccine. Yeah. And, and that sort of encourages this notion that I, I kind of don't want my neighbor to know. I don't really want to talk about that with my neighbor. If I find out there's shots at CVS, do I sneak over there and get the shot? That's not a healthy way to approach a, the greatest pandemic in American history since 1918. I mean, I'm saying the ought instead of the is right now, but how can we disagree with that? That's right. And also uh, really stoking the dangerous existing resentment that has we've seen raging over the last few years. You know, I, I keep coming back to uh, Florida Governor Rick Scott, who gave this offhanded sort of comment, like, we're not going to vaccinate some 25-year-old health orderly in a nursing home when we have all of these, you know, other people who are, you know, in the parentheses, right, more deserving, more worthy, more resilient. I'm not really even, you know, there are so many parts to that, but it was just this offhanded shorthand for, I don't want to give my vaccine to them um, and sort of othering this group of people who, um, you know, every expert agrees should be the absolute first to get um, the vaccine for many, many reasons. I'm overstating a little, not maybe not every expert and, and all those other things. Um, but, you know, he said it and then um, I've been hearing it get picked up, you know, here and there and there. It, 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 it resonated. I want to remind really folks that you're listening to COVID calls and uh, talking today about public health the history of medicine, vaccines, and vaccination with Debbie Levine and Jacob Steer-Williams. Jacob, I'm sorry, I cut you off there. Please go ahead. No, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about too with, with this vaccine delivery question is there there is pretty widespread agreement amongst public health officials about states starting with frontline healthcare workers and those over 65. But after those categories, there actually is quite a bit of, you know, uncertainty as to how the vaccine should get rolled out. And we're seeing, on the one hand, a lot of opportunism, you know, people saying, well, how is it that whatever my personal problem is, how may I qualify for the vaccine to bump myself up on the priority line, right? Um, and, and, you know, what I fear is, you know, that as the science, you know, we're all, one of the things we're dealing with in, in the middle of this natural disaster is, is that the science is changing every day, too. So, so not only do we see, you know, things that I'm not seeing in the front page headlines, like, a new UK variant and a new South African variant. How did that? How does that? You know, new scientific information play into vaccine delivery. Um, but what also happens at the cultural level? You know, I, I got into a fight the other day with somebody on social media, which I've really been trying not to do this year, but uh, it, it has happened. Where somebody commented and they say, "I once I get, you know, I'm signed up for my vaccine, and once I get my first shot, the first thing I'm going to do is is go to a steakhouse and get drunk at a bar." You know, and I just and I just blasted this person for for saying that, but but I think there is some real, you know, there's a real public health problem underfoot that as we get more vaccines available, we get more people being reckless, and and I'm really worried about that. I'm seeing that in my own community. You know, our bars are are packed um, in downtown Charleston and restaurants on a daily basis. We have a huge tourist economy, and you know, law enforcement's pretty unwilling to you know, enforce things as a result of those, uh, those, those, you know, those interventions. Is, is that a historical phenomenon that we can observe in a pandemic? If the curve gets 
gets bent or if there's less reporting going on or for some reason public perception of the threat goes down that people actually increase their uh, risk risky behavior they they stop averting the risk have we seen that in other cases that you guys are aware of well the example that's coming to my mind right now is the cyclical way that we fund public health initiatives um, in within U.S. health policy, um, which is a it's really like a non policy. It's it, we kind of we go from crisis to crisis. And as the crisis uh, seems to turn, um, then we stop funding. So we had a very successful for this is a small example, but we had a very successful lead abatement program here in Rhode Island. Rhode Island has old housing stock. We are also uh, we have a lot of absentee landlords um, and we're a relatively poor state for our region. And so we had very high all of those things combined together and we had very high lead exposure rates. We then um, then uh, the federal government and other agencies uh, staffed up and funded up a very successful uh, lead abatement program here in Rhode Island over 10 years. But as the the incidence and prevalence of lead poisoning dropped, uh, the funding went away. So uh, when I talk about this with my students, I always end with a question of like, and what is lead? What is it like now? Has it gone? You know, we have numbers through 2012. What? has the last eight years looked like? But the answer is we don't really know because we the the perception of the emergency faded and then the attention and the funding went away. Um, and I so that's not exactly a corollary to what you were talking about, but it does speak to this kind of issue of the way that we have addressed public health uh, in the past. Actually, I think it's a, it's a much better framing of what I was putting out there, which is that um, I think I fell a bit into my own trap there. We shouldn't be necessarily looking at how individuals answer a Pew Research poll. We should also be looking at the institutional frameworks within which they're trying to make sense of things, but also the policymakers themselves who are driving what these priorities would be. We assume there's a sort of relationship there. Members of Congress can get voted in and out. The president can get voted in and out. They'll set health policy. But it's not as exact as all that. And what you've described, I think, is a great example where, you know, the you could have health policy going one direction in a sort of a crisis intervention mode. This happens across disasters, not just public health. Right. A lot of discussion about a type of building code or, or flood insurance or something like that. And then it recedes. The distance you sometimes it's about you get a certain distance away from a disaster. And so it just fades from public consciousness, media attention drops or there is an electoral calculus so that these things become hotter as you get closer to an election and cooler when you get away, when there's a less of a reward for politicians to pay attention to something like that. If I could just add one, one thing, for listeners who are interested in reading more about this, there is an elegant and beautiful article um, in Health Affairs by um, historian Elizabeth Fee um, that uh, sort of charts out some of these examples of um, and it's, it's it's a really short piece, um, and it charts out some really nice examples of kind of the the way we are we're like a moth to the flame, um, uh, scattering from disaster to disaster um, too often in in U.S. public health. And I should also say, you know, there's a lot that U.S. public health has done really well, um, and there have been a lot of successes, and there are a lot of excellent individuals doing really important work across the country. I feel like I suddenly realized I was focusing on critical negatives. 
No, and I appreciate, I always like it when people give us reading uh, assignments. Uh, historians are good for that. So with that, let me just turn just for a second here. We're almost up on time, actually, but I, I, my guests have agreed to stay for a few more minutes, which I greatly appreciate. Um, I would like to talk about teaching a little bit. We started our conversation talking about your own teaching at this time. Um, obviously, from this conversation, I'm sort of really wishing I had had an opportunity to take a class with either or both of you when I was an undergraduate. Your command and breadth of what you're bringing to bear to understand this pandemic is impressive. Take us behind the scenes a little bit. How has your approach to public health history, history of medicine pedagogy changed, if at all, throughout this last year? Jacob, let me start with you on that, and then um, Debbie will come to you. So before COVID-19 uh, started, I I've been teaching um, at my university for eight years, and I every semester I teach a history of public health or a history of disease class. And my last lecture that I always used to say, and I, you know, I really sort of built this huge, you know, grand finale lecture uh, to just say, at one point in your lives, you know, students, you're going to experience a pandemic, and you're equipped to see it now in, in different ways. And I've had to really pivot because now we're living in, in inside of one. Um, and so this semester I'm teaching a medical health humanities class and I've designed it just as a COVID class. We're just trying to, you know, see what uh, various disciplines and scholars can help us to, to understand this moment. And I've just been completely overwhelmed at the student response. We're in week three, mind you, but I mean, in no other time in my teaching career have students been more willing and engaged with a subject than now. And, and that's, I've been trying to really reflect almost every day on that. You know, we're all overstimulated with pandemic anxiety right now. And, and not everybody can be or is up to speed with the rapid changes in the, in the science or in our responses, either locally or, or state or federally or globally. Um, and so, you know, I've been asking students to be, to, to really empower them to say that they're part of this process they're part of this history in the making. So I've been asking them to journal their experiences and in particularly to talk about something that historians don't always talk about and scholars in general is their emotional responses to the pandemic. You know, that's something I've been really keying in on of being forthright with my students with my own emotional responses during this pandemic and my own personal life and my teaching life um, and to get them to see, think through that as well, you know, and the response has been, it's, it's been overwhelming. So, you know, students have told me about their isolation, uh, being in their rented homes with three other roommates and two of whom are COVID positive and they're afraid to come out of their dorm rooms. Um, students who have lost friendships over the pandemic because friends they once had are, you know, COVID denialists and not engaging in risky behavior. Uh, uh, you know, students who are at odds with their family members over the COVID politics. And, you know, those are all things that have happened to me, too, um, in, in my personal life. Uh, and, and, and I think it's really, you know, it's been 
cathartic in a way to talk to students about this at a, at a level of emotional responses to the pandemic. And also to see, you know, that, that humans in the past have experienced pandemics and natural disasters before. That doesn't always help us to understand and get out of this situation. Um, but I think it does, it does humanize it. Debbie, let me bring you in on that as well. Jacob, thank you so much for sharing that. I just want to insert a little comment and then Debbie turn to you and your sort of teaching experience. I have found that as well. I know we all were asked a lot back in March and April. What's, it's kind of a version of people don't ask it this way. They're like, what, what are we paying all this money for historians for again? If you guys can't tell us that there's a good lesson from the past that we should be following here. And I actually found myself really grasping until I hit on the fact that for me at least, that it was the reservoir of the history of emotion and memorial that has made the greatest sense to me as something to pull from, from history that is helpful, useful, I don't know what the right term here, but absolutely resonant. And, and World War I, you know, the, the sort of missing aspect of the influenza from a lot of sort of public consciousness it bothered me for a long time until I realized that that trauma was subsumed in World War I, and you can find a lot of World War I trauma out there. It's one trauma. And that was an insight to me that it's really, what you're saying, Jacob, sticks a lot with what I've been experiencing and also trying to find some openness and honesty to talk to students. I taught a pandemic course, I taught a COVID-19 course over the summer, which I look back now is like teaching a Hurricane Katrina course about the time before the levees broke. But I'm glad I did. But it was a preliminary. It was a first take. Debbie, I didn't mean to cut you off there. I just want, before I forgot that thought, what's your teaching? Oh, like? Not at all, not at all. That's so fascinating. Yeah, you know, um, so, so in some ways it's similar to some of the things that you both have outlined. Um, in the spring, uh, when our campus shut down in March, I, um, shifted and instead of a final exam, I had students uh, have the option to write a pandemic journal, kind of what every day was like. Um, and we looked at some examples of, this is in an intro to US health policy class, but as a historian, I tend to frame things historically. So we looked at some examples of um, accounts of sickness from people's uh, diaries and letters. And then they wrote, they wrote some, and then I gave students the option to have those in the deposited to the college archives and about 10 students um, elected to do that. So we're starting to create some collections of what the experience of the pandemic was like. Um, I didn't, well, so, I, and I'll say that like Jacob, I learned about conflicts between families. I learned about um, students becoming essentially homeless um, over the course of the, the lockdown period, the, the more stringent lockdown period. I learned about um, couples breaking up because one was going to a party and the other was taking it seriously. Um, and just a number of um, things from the mundane to the, the heartbreaking. Um, and I was really pleased that my students trusted me um, with those stories. And um, as a historian, I was pleased that so many of them kind of drew uh, parallels to their experiences 
um, of the pandemic with some of the text that we had engaged with in the classroom. It wasn't a requirement and they did it anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say that, you know, my focus on teaching um, this fall and certainly into this semester, um, a lot of it has been on the challenges to building community um, during this time. And so uh, because I'm teaching um, U.S. health policy and, and about the healthcare system, um, there's a lot um, there, there's, there's a lot of content that is important to talk about. And I've, I've rethought how I do the content in some ways, but I spent a lot of my time thinking about kindness in the classroom, building community in the classroom, thinking about building community in virtual classroom spaces, um, kind of how do you teach and foster empathy in academic spaces? What does an assessment look like that puts, um, kindness and empathy and resilience at the center? Um, those kinds of things, which I think could be applied to any classes. And I've been um, reading a lot about them. Um, I guess the other thing is like like Jacob, you know, I used to have um, in the last week of class, I would talk about um, the epidemiologic transition unmade. And, you know, we are we, you know, now we are only focused on chronic health care. And what is, will there be a moment when we are um, subsumed with concern about contagious and communicable diseases yet again. And of course, the answer is yes, we will. But, um, you know, I've, I've dropped that from the, <laughs> the syllabus and reframed it. Um, I think the other big thing that's changed for me is that I used to have to do a lot of work. I teach at I, I many of my students come from very privileged backgrounds, not not all but many, they have excellent health insurance, they've had the benefit of very good health. Um, and um, they're able-bodied um, over the course of their lifetime. And so I used to have to do a lot of work to sort of convince them to pay attention to some of the weaknesses that are so apparent to so many in our healthcare uh, system here in the United States and convincing them of that, particularly convincing them of some of the weaknesses in our um, public health infrastructure used to take a lot of work, like a lot of scaffolding and you know <laughs> all of this stuff. And now it's just like, nope, we're here. Like, Let's, you know, they don't need the convincing. They just, you know, let's talk about how to fix it. Let's talk about what the, the structures of the problems are. Um, and and that has um, helped us have really different and, and I think um, in some ways deeper and better conversations. Do you talk to your students? This is, we're wrapping up now, but I, this, I did want to find out what you thought about this. Debbie, do you talk to your students about how this will end? So... I I have not um, formally talked about sort of how pandemics end from my my perspective, but I will say that I've had a number of students come to me and say, I'm done with this. Mm. Um, I'm so done with this pandemic. That's I'm tired right. of the lockdowns. I'm tired of this. Um, and I try to, I you know, they're in a health policy course. So um, presumably they're not, <laughs> they're not done with thinking about health policy. And, you know, I try to turn it around and say, really, this is the challenge of your moment and your generation. And um, there's a lot about this moment that, you know, has changed what your college experience looks like. Um, but you're not done with this because it's not done with you. And maybe there are some opportunities to write or think or research. Um, but I need to I need to do some more thinking about that. I, I'm impressed by that answer, though, in the sense that, I'm, of, of course, I, and I've talked with guests on COVID calls who say, I'm just so done with this, um, so over this. 
and you realize as you're having that conversation, like, no, we're not. We're just starting. And as people who analyze this, we are truly just starting. Um, Jacob, same question to you. I mean, do you discuss this question of, of ending points? Historians love to periodize things and then completely disavow our periodizations. That's what we live for, I guess, to a certain extent. What do you I mean, think? In my, um, you know, in my courses on the history of disease, you know, by the end of the semester, students sort of come to this conclusion on their own. And I'm interested now, you know, going forward, you know, putting COVID in the, that discussion, you know, because here's the pattern, at least, you know, for, for the global history of disease, is that, you know, the, the, the major infectious diseases that the Western world struggled with in the 19th century, you know, slowly started to, to disappear in the early 20th century, cholera, typhoid, um, and scarlet fever, you know, diphtheria. And, and in spite of those disappearing, quote unquote, in the West, those disease, many of those diseases even today continue to impact the global South. They're not diseases that are on the front page headlines in newspapers in the Western world. And, you know, many students come to my classroom and they've never even heard of the word cholera, what that even means. They have a hard time pronouncing that word cholera when they see it on the page. Um, but if you look at the sort of global burdens of disease, what you really see is that sometimes pandemics don't really end. They just become endemic diseases that get pushed off on the global south. And so that's, you know, it, my, my, my futuristic historian brain, you know, keeps worrying that even if we, if we sort of figure out COVID and it gets mitigated in the West, it's just going to become one of those other diseases that's endemic in, in the global south. I mean, uh, you know, we're seeing that with vaccines. So I was reading an, an article this morning um, that, that was about Nigeria, you know, the, the most populous nation in Africa that, that has no COVID vaccines right now, which is true of many countries in the, in, in the in global south. I want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls today and you can catch COVID calls live every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. I'm going to continue discussion tomorrow with historians. We're going to have a historian's roundtable about COVID-19 and public health and the history of politics with Cindy Irmas, Tiago Sariva, and Sandra Adair, and I hope you'll join us for that. And I want to thank my guests today, Deborah Levine and Jacob Steer-Williams, and all of the people who um, also put questions in today. We didn't get to all of them. We got to a few of them. It's great to have such, uh, such lively engagement. Debbie and Jacob, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much. This was great. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, 5 o'clock.